0: The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. Are we humans, residents of the planet Earth, or are we simply stardust? What if we're both? What does that mean for us and how we should think and what we should do Kurt Vonnegut took that approach, that we are planetary citizens, but also here to make a better world. He did it through a kind of literary activism, which addressed environmental problems like pollution, social problems like racial and economic injustice, and dehumanizing technological problems. And of course, war. Sometimes those things overlapped, and it was Vonnegut's special talent to present them in a way that overlapped approaches and styles the gloomy uncle who's also hilarious, the best friend who makes you laugh until you cry and or cry until there's nothing to do but laugh, the cynic who nevertheless does his best, the activist who thinks none of it matters and we're all doomed. We'll hear from a Vonnegut scholar today, Christina Jarvis, professor of English at SUNY Fredonia. Fredonia sounds like a place Vonnegut made up, doesn't it? But but no, it's an actual city in New York, or village, I should say. Home to 9,871 people. Champions, everyone, no doubt. Professor Jarvis has written a book called Lucky Mud and Other FOMA, A Field Guide to Kurt Vonnegut's Planetary Citizenship. There's a picture of Vonnegut holding a monkey on the cover, and it's very easy to imagine the two of them thinking very similar thoughts as they gaze out at the humans who are busy running around, attempting much, accomplishing little. But there is accomplishment in the attempt, perhaps. Christina Jarvis here today on The History of Literature. (laughs) Hey, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. Should we just go straight at him today and never mind the maneuvers? A la Admiral Nelson. Well, why not? Or maybe I'll just give you uh, a little bit about Kurt Vonnegut speaking at the first Earth Day, which was a little over 50 years ago. This comes from the Village Voice with a headline that says, Can a Grand Falloon Save the Planet? The Voice's website today, very wonderfully gives us the article as it was printed on the page, letting us see what was around this article. A lot of ads for furniture. I guess residents in the village move in and out a lot, maybe. Stuffing those little apartments of theirs with mattresses and shelves and bric-a-brac and junk seems like the opposite of what we'd want for environmentally conscious people, although maybe the irony is truer in spirit and maybe I shouldn't be so hard on the villagers. This is Greenwich Village, by the way, since the the footprint of urban dwellers like those who live in Manhattan is much, much smaller and healthier for the planet than those who live in big homes with big yards and have big appetites. Still, we have on a single page, on one page of the Village Voice, an ad for Foam environments a la Bloomingdale's bed down with us, says Frederick the Mattress King. RV Coal Limited is hawking all steel frame bunk beds. Sit down, says the chair store. Custom Art Furniture is building modular wall units any size, any finish. Patrician says they have the best restored oak in New York. They specialize in round oak tables, roll-top desks, and chairs. 14th Street Store, in quotes, are wholesale distributors of foam. The answer to inexpensive sleep comfort and re- reupholstering of furniture. You can also rent furniture. You can buy ancient and modern art and handcrafts from Amron, too. This is all on one page. There are four places selling antiques. Old Horizons, the New York flea market, antiques from Alada. Their slogan is, what? You haven't even been to Antiques from Alada once? <laughs> what? Space! Exclamation mark. You haven't even, that space really emphasizes the exclamation mark. I have to say, well, let me help you, Antiques from Alada. If you are still in business, why don't you change your name to Alada Antiques? Much, much better. Our last antique store on this Village Voice page is... An ad from Nostalgia Alley, which claims, if it's old, we have it. Dolls, doll houses, doll furniture, games, toys, blocks, paper dolls, etc., etc., etc. Great Mother's Day gifts. They say, well, I got my mom an old paper doll for Mother's Day. She didn't even thank me. That brings to 13 the number of furniture and furniture-related ads on one page in the Village Voice, April thirtieth, 1970. The only two ads that aren't for furniture are for Stella cigarette papers from Simon Imports, Inc., which is selling all types of imported papers, they say, including banana, strawberry, cherry, mint, licorice, and chocolate. If you haven't kissed someone with the taste of licorice and tobacco on their breath, you haven't lived. And the final advertisement is from Floors by Greenwich, which for some reason is not selling floors or anything floor-related. They're selling, quote, furs, 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 end quote. Steer hides, Australian lamb, Spanish kid, African skunk, Canadian wolf, Norwegian fox, Icelandic sheep. I'm not sure that's a fur. I would think that one would be wool. French rabbit, raccoon, opossum, and zebra. Priced from $15.95. And there on this page, surrounded by furniture ads and paper doll sales. (laughs) Hawking of paper dolls and toys, and dolls, dollhouses, doll furniture, cigarette papers, and furs, is this article, Can a Grand Faloon Save the Planet? by Anna Mayo. The article begins. It was the night before Earth Day. Kurt Vonnegut, set off by the ambiance of the Algonquin Hotel, looked more like Mark Twain than Hal Holbrook. For those of you who don't know, Hal Holbrook was a famous imitator of Mark Twain. They mean, Vonnegut looks a lot like Mark Twain. He was talking about the environment. Do you think, Mr. Vonnegut, that the environmental movement is a grand faloon or a universal caras? Everybody knows the answer to that question, but that's not for publication. He said, not today. By next week, you might as well tell him. The article explains in parentheses... In Vonnegutian, or maybe that's in Vonnegutian, in Vonnegutian, a grand faloon is a false and meaningless association of people. The daughters of the American Revolution, citizens of a nation, the International Communist Party, and all persons under 30 are the examples of grand faloons. A caress, on the other hand, is a true connection among persons meant to be with one another. It's now a week after Earth Day. It's okay to print the answer, which everybody knows anyway. The environmental movement is a grand faloon. It's a big, soppy pillow, said Vonnegut. Nobody's going to do anything. He did cheer up briefly and told about a man he'd heard of out at GM who's invented a big grinder to grind up all the automobiles. Last week, they got rid of all the old cars in Cleveland. He described the grinder with enthusiasm as looking like one a kid would design. He indicated a big crank. Later he spoke, as in his novel The Sirens of Titan, of the essential capacity to bear pain. In Sirens, the hero is challenged to put up with shocks sent to antenna fixed in his brain whenever he starts to think about anything personal and or true. People read his books Vonnegut supposes, because they're interested in God. Also, he added, I'm very funny. I'm the funniest writer in America. That's always a trump. All you can teach he summed up, all you can teach anybody is how to endure. At noon, Earth Day, on the steps of the New York City Public Library, the Manhattan College of Music Brass Ensemble played fanfares. The sun burst forth and whooshes of pigeons filled the air. Kurt Vonnegut, famous author and weary space traveler, emerged from the library portals and descended to the speaker's platform. Among several dignitaries, he was the gloomiest. It is unusual, he began, for a total pessimist to be speaking at a spring celebration. Anyway, here we all are, the peaceful demonstrators, mostly white. President Nixon has our power and our money. And the best thing for him to do is get out of the war business. Will he do it? No. And as the war goes on, meanwhile, we are free to walk up and down Fifth Avenue, picking up the trash missed by the sanitation department. We can surely look forward to some great advertising campaigns. Now polluters are looked upon as ordinary Joes, just doing their jobs. In the future, they will be looked upon as swine. Will the president do anything about pollution? Probably not. In closing, Vonnegut consoled the crowd after his fashion. Those who try their best to save the planet will find a loose, cheerful, sexy brass band waiting to honor them right outside the pearly gates. What will the band be playing? When the saints come marching in. People in the crowd reacted to Vonnegut in various ways. One elderly lady paced this way and that, talking fiercely throughout all the speeches, including Vonnegut's. Her name, she said, was Lydia Petrovna, and she looked it. She said she had been born just east of Odessa, but had grown up in Yugoslavia. She was wearing black socks on her bulgy ankles, a large, dusty, black felt hat, and a Belgrade-style maxi coat. A gold monkey pin with green rhinestone eyes was pinned on the back of the hat, and she carried a sturdy, rubber-tipped cane. Although much of what she had to say was in Yugoslavian, she did get across in English that the trouble is we don't listen to the right teachers. This could be. A music professor from Iowa with a neat white mustache walked down the middle of Fifth Avenue. He was holding a flower. He didn't have time to make much of a comment on Vonnegut's speech since he was intent on singing the 12th century canon Summer is a coming in. In Old English, all parts. He preferred not to give his name, as he didn't trust reporters. Bad experiences, you know. But he didn't mind being called Mr. Daffodil for the day, like the roast beef once eaten on Fridays by resourceful medieval monks who baptized it as fish. Te baptizo carpum. You can baptize me, Daffodil, he said, rosily. He and Lydia Petrovna gave the impression they knew a lot about how to endure. That's the article from the Village Voice on the first Earth Day, including Kurt Vonnegut as he spoke on the steps of the New York City Public Library. So there we have it, daffodils and fish struggling against the current of furniture, foam, and furs, and Kurt Vonnegut as our merry cherubim. Smiling with sad eyes. Christina Jarvis. After this. Hey, grown-ups. The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the cat in the hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hatcast. Follow the Cat in the Hatcast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hatcast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is Dr. Christina Jarvis, professor of English at Fredonia University in upstate New York. Dr. Jarvis has taught numerous courses in English and American studies. She's the author of the book, The Male Body at War, American Masculinity During World War II, and the recent book, Lucky Mud and Other FOMA, a field guide to Kurt Vonnegut's planetary citizenship. Professor Jarvis, welcome to the History of Literature.
1: Thank you so much, and thank you for having me. I just wanted to to thank you, on behalf of book-loving people for doing the podcast. I think in the Vonnegut world, you would be a secular saint.
0: Okay, well, that's high praise. I feel like maybe we should just wrap things up there. I'm not going to get better than that. Okay. Uh, So we have explored Vonnegut's life and works a few times before, including his experiences in World War II and how they helped form him as a writer and a person. And I was wondering if your interest in Vonnegut grew out of your research and your writing of the previous book about World War II, or if you were a fan of Vonnegut and had a a scholarly interest in him before that.
1: So I actually have a Kind of a winding, circuitous relationship with Vonnegut. okay um, but I'll keep it brief. I actually first read him when yeah. I was probably thirteen or fourteen. I would steal my brother's books, but I honestly, I didn't get it, and then I'm embarrassed to say this, but I didn't read him in college because I was a serious English major. yeah, um, but actually, you mentioned the World War II book, and I actually had a chapter. Um, the Vietnamization of World War II and Slaughterhouse-Five and Gravity's Rainbow. It didn't make it into the book, but I published it as a separate article. And Mark Leeds invited me to join the Kurt Vonnegut Society based on that article. And sure enough, I accepted it. And then it was actually my students demanding that I teach more than Cat's Cradle that kind of got me to take the deep dive and I've been um, following these peculiar travel suggestions ever since.
0: Mm. Were your brothers older?
1: Oh, I just had one brother. He's three years older, but he would actually steal them from my mom. Oh, and, you know,
0: So Vonnegut had been on the shelves in your house.
1: Passed around, but no one actually ever handed me a Vonnegut book or taught me a Vonnegut book.
0: Yeah. It seems like you maybe were a little bit young. It seems like... I don't know. I kind of feel like there's a a space that he occupies that, I mean, my own experience was he appealed to that side of me that was also reading Mad Magazine and watching Monty Python and Saturday Night Live, and but then got a little bit older, a little bit more sophisticated. And it was really when I was 18 or 19 that I could truly appreciate him.
1: I agree completely. And I think we overlap with the money python and just the sense of being irreverent
0: yeah right okay so from there what made you decide to write a book about Vonnegut and the environment was the environment something you were interested in separately or was it because you noticed a particular connection with Vonnegut and the environment that you wanted to explore
1: so kind of both I was getting more involved with sustainability for my own kind of personal and family and just, you know, being a person on the planet with a lot going on. But really, as I, you know, I mentioned my students as I was, you know, being a good teacher and preparing, I came across an interview from 1969, where Vonnegut talked about a draft of Breakfast of Champions, where he has the Great Lakes disappear under plastic pollution. Mm. I was like, what? That's (laughs) not in the book. You know, and then I just kept digging and I found, I was like, he spoke at the first Earth Day. He spoke at an anti-nuclear rally after Three Mile Island. You know, I just kept finding all these other pieces. And I realized there was a much bigger story there. So I kind of, you know, wanted to go with that. But I also, you know, in doing the project and really focusing on his environmental and social justice work, I think it's important sometimes to kind of decenter Slaughterhouse-Five. It also felt like even though that was and is you know, his major breakthrough novel, it just felt like just the story's kind of solidifying the way, you know, you would hate for Mark Twain to be reduced to, say, Huckleberry Finn. Mm-hmm. So I, I really want to kind of tilt the axis of his career and instead of putting Slaughterhouse-Five at the center, what happens if we just move it forward to that Earth Day and then, you know, re-envision his career? So I think in part, it's allowing his other works to shine as well. Right.
0: Yeah, I think that's really true. We've kind of have come to associate Vonnegut with a few there's a few things that he still is in the the popular culture with and and internet memes and so on and and one of them is his description of stories and storytelling and every once in a while he'll have something about art or writing that that makes it. But I think for the most part he's kind of become viewed as this World War II survivor who in POW who ended up being crucial to the Vietnam movement. And we forget that he had this environmental uh, side to him. And maybe we should talk about his Earth Day speech, which is pretty incredible. It's about 50 years ago. And a lot has changed since then, but a lot hasn't. So, what were you seeing there that maybe the problems that he was identifying that have been addressed or not?
1: And so, I'm sure all of your very fine listeners are well aware, but I always have to remind my students that so much of the environmental regulations and protections we take for granted didn't exist in 1970. I mean, we had the Cuyahoga River catching on fire multiple times, oil spills. I mean, near where I live, there was a nuclear, a commercial nuclear reprocessing site. I mean, I think we forget that. Mm -hmm. And so, and also, I mean, just how bad the pollution was. I mean, just how awful things were.
0: Leaded gasoline and acid rain and... uh,
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Um, So just a reminder of that. But in Vonnegut's speech, I think the thing that's really striking, they title it when they collect it, Nixon's the one, he really wants to focus on big systemic change. And he, in fact, kind of criticizes the anti-litter campaign, which a lot of the corporations were actually doing to, you know, show they were on board. And so Vonnegut, though, is saying, no, 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 we have to go after government. We need these big things. And of course, you know, Earth Day was hugely successful. We did get the EPA. We got the bans on leaded gasoline and DDT. It's the Clean Water Act and the Endangered Species Act. And so they actually accomplished a lot.
0: Yeah, I mean, picking up litter is about the most corporate-friendly environmental policy you can imagine. You can see why that would be the least threatening to them.
1: Yeah, and there were, I mean, crazy <laughs> campaigns, Suzy, Spotless, and the Keep America Beautiful, you know. Yeah. And it, I have to say, it's not that dissimilar to how, you know, a lot of the fossil fuel companies distracted us with our individual cor- carbon footprint instead of, again, going after bigger
0: issues. Right. Change the light bulbs in your house.
1: Yep. Mm. Instead of like, no, let's make international climate pledges and work on decarbonizing, et cetera.
0: Yeah. So Vonnegut was pretty pessimistic in 1970. I was reading in your book that he was viewed that way at the time as well. Kind of the, oh, here's the the gloomy of the, of the of the speakers. What would you say would be the source of his pessimism?
1: For people who don't know the speech, I mean, he literally begins, it's unusual for a total pessimist to be speaking in springtime. And, you know, he calls the, not in the the speech, but in an interview, he calls the environmental movement a soppy pillow and a grand saloon. And I think we, again, have to keep in mind a couple things. One, you know, the broader rhetoric was, you know, this is the Earth's last stand, the guide for survival. But also, I mean, Vonnegut had marched at the Vietnam moratorium and Nixon was watching a football game. Nixon sat out Earth Day. You know, he didn't participate. He actually bugged the headquarters of the organizers. So you could see, you know, based on experience and also the lack of response in Vietnam. I mean, using agent, I think we like took out one eighth of the country, you know, I mean, so I, I could see why he would have been pessimistic. But if I may push back a little, because I think sometimes we, we think about Vonnegut in this apocalyptic prophet of doom, there's actually beneath that pessimism, he actually was quite, I wouldn't necessarily say optimistic, but working for change anyway. Yeah. For example, you know, he donated the Earth Day speech to a collection and they used the proceeds to actually unseat seven of the 12 worst Congress people with the worst environmental records. He donated his Bennington address speech for use in an earth kit put out by Waybill, And he, you know, kept addressing it in his work. So, you know, I think sometimes with Bonnegut, you have to look at what he does and not necessarily what he says, mm. if that makes sense. Because if he truly was a pessimist, he wouldn't keep writing and doing things.
0: Yeah, right. He's sort of, the quote, I think it was in your book that I came across it again, but it, it's it's something like he he believes that humanity is capable of the very worst things, but he loves us anyway.
1: Yes, I love that quote. I think it's Jay Ventilla. Kurt Vonnegut saw us for who we are and loved us anyway. Yeah. I love that quote about him. <laughs> it's so true.
0: Yeah. And in so many different areas. I mean, you could say he had the same view of of war or of literature in a way that, you know, none of this will matter. Everyone will ignore it. There's no reason to even think that poetry can change the world. And yet it's worth doing. What else do we have? What else could possibly give us any hope? It's the most hopeful thing we could possibly do.
1: Yeah, I'm probably going to botch the quote, but there's that moment in Timequake when he says, you know, which, of course, for your, your listeners, you know, that was Vonnegut's final novel, not his final book. But, you know, he's lamenting people not reading, not doing things. And he says, still in all, why bother? Because I think and feel as you do. I care about many of the things you care about. Even if other people don't care about them, you are not alone. You know, that says a lot there.
0: Okay, well let's take a quick break and then we'll come back. I want to ask you about your research uh, into this book and then kind of talk through some of the terms of the book that are right there in your title that I think we should explain. Okay. Okay, we are back with Christina Jarvis, author of Lucky Mud and Other FOMA, talking about Kurt Vonnegut. So why don't you tell us about your experience at the Lilly Library?
1: Oh, that's whole experience was just one big Uncle Alex moment. Uh, (laughs) You know, it's just the joy of discovery. Yeah. I don't I don't think people realize how much is there.
0: Yeah. What is there?
1: Okay. So not only do you have his manuscripts for most of his major works, you know, you could chart the full 20 year history of Slaughterhouse-Five, for example.
0: These are typewritten? you see the typescripts of different drafts or do you get handwritten pages or what do you see?
1: A whole combination of things. Mm. I mean, you have, he typed everything, but hand corrections, drawings, but in there you'll find, you'll literally find like notes he wrote to himself, his laundry list, his to do. I mean, just you, you're seeing an author in his most private, in his head. I mean, it's to me, one of the most intimate spaces. But in addition to just that, you have, you know, his, all of his anthropology materials, everything, he kept everything from grad school. You have, you know, his artwork, you have his fan mail, his letters, his family history, his report cards, his passports. I mean, you could just dive in. There's so much there. But I think one of the things that's really unique about Vonnegut, you know, he, until Timequake, he was still using... His Smith-Corona typewriters, mm. you know, there's every draft. I mean, some are, some are obviously missing, and they're not there for everything. But you could just watch, you know, how he built this. It's incredible.
0: Right. And you said that it changed your, some of your initial assumptions and approaches to the topic.
1: Oh, I mean, once you get into the manuscripts, it just blows your mind. So, for example, you know, I kind of thought he wrote the things chronologically. But Cat's Cradle has a 13-year gestation process. It goes in all kinds of of different directions. But the crazy thing about it, in most of the drafts, the apocalypse, the Ice Nine apocalypse doesn't happen. You know, like you see versions where there's like Ice Eight, Nine, and Ten. I mean, it just goes in so many different directions. And what I realized is there are just these incredible stories behind the stories. I mean, there's like a fourth dimension to so many of his works that really reveal a lot about his process.
2: Oh, wow.
1: I also found out, you know, he famously said, you know, throughout most of his career that he was a basher. You know, he just would write things over and over and over again until he got it right. And that's pretty much true. But, man, he could swoop, you know, he would switch genres. He would he would go from a novel to writing it as a play or sometimes poetry. You know, Sirens of Titan was literally, there's a draft where they're all scrolls.
2: Mm. You know,
1: he would tape together, you know, some some of the pages for Breakfast of Champions are several feet long because he would tape it and collage it. I mean, it just kind of blew my mind, frankly.
0: (laughs) Right. It almost sounds like, the, the novel we end up with, the one that we can buy in the store is sort of like the director's cut or the, the the you know, one version, but maybe the, or maybe uh, music is a better analogy of this is the one they recorded, but there were all kinds of different versions where they, they did it as reggae, they did it as country, they, you know, they, they took a bunch of different cracks at it before they got the one that they wanted to put out as a record.
1: Exactly. And I think it, it showed, you know, for people who know Vonnegut, I think he's famous for being accessible, kind of on a syntax level. Yep. But I could tell you he worked tremendously hard to make it easy on the reader. But I think it's also deceptively simple. There's yeah. so much going on in Vonnegut's novels that you miss you know, all of the rich allusions or things in the structure. And working with the manuscripts, you actually get to see how he built it. You get to see, you know, how he got there. When he adds in, you know, a more kind of cultural anthropological kind of thread, and so it's funny. Vonnegut had a very polished appearance, you know, talking about the bashing, but I think that, you know, there's there's a lot more to it, and I, I hope that as we, you know, we're nearing, we're at the Vonnegut centennial, you know, I hope that Vonnegut scholars and Vonnegut studies in the future you know, really continue along this path and kind of take him a bit more seriously in terms of some of what he's doing as a writer.
0: It sounds like we could use a an annotated version or like a, a Norton Critical Edition kind of version where we get to see some of those drafts and, and someone like yourself might help us uh, walk us through them. You could be the, the Virgil for the rest <laughs> of us.
1: <laughs> that that would be awesome. That, that would be up to the Vonnegut Trust. They have control over his manuscripts.
0: Right. Okay, so let's talk about the substance you were finding. So let's just start with the idea of planetary citizenship. What is a planetary citizen in Vonnegut's vision?
1: So Vonnegut most often uses it to describe, you know, what we would say as kind of citizens of the world, you know, artists, musicians, cosmopolitan thinkers, so people whose work exceeds national boundaries. A lot of you know, what you cover on your podcast, frankly, but he also uses it as, you know, in kind of more typical environmental terms, you know, looking at us as earthlings, you know, you see in Vonnegut's fiction, these views from Titan or Charles looking back at earth, you know, a rare earth that is unique in, you know, the known universe for supporting life, for supporting our species, you know, and and that's quite typical of a lot of environmentalism from his time. But he also, you know, thinks about us as a species and questions of deep time.
0: Mm-hmm. And that suggests almost like a, a sort of stewardship, it should imply, or maybe to criticize humans for being bad citizens because of the heavy footprint they leave on the planet.
1: Exactly. He's always talking about us wounding this sweet, you know, nourishing, lovable planet full of life, you know, and he's right. Look at what we are doing. (laughs) Yeah,
0: we have an outsized impact and have not always used that for the better. Used it for sort of selfish, selfishly.
1: If I may add, I guess I, so I go beyond how Vonnegut uses the term in my book. Mm -hmm. I think of it, you know, more broadly for his environmental and social justice engagements. And I really honed in on a passage where he talked about being a good citizen, and what it meant as an author. And he said he wanted to, quote unquote, poison the minds of young people with humanity Mm. to make a better world. And so, you know, obviously I look at the real poisonings, whether pollution or racial injustice or economic injustice. And so I kind of look at it more broadly than he does. But I think, hopefully, it will all, you know, make sense to the readers why I, you know, go beyond just how he used the term.
0: Yeah. So the other terms you have in your title, Lucky Mud and FOMA, both of those come from the invented religion in Cat's Cradle, and I'm going to, to butcher the pronunciation of this, but I think it's Bokononism or or Bokonanism, something. <laughs> anyway, how does that religion point us toward Vonnegut's critiques of, I guess, religion, but really blind faith in science?
2: So
1: in Cat's Cradle, you know, readers will note he kind of puts religion and science intention with each other. Mm-hmm. And obviously, that's a novel that's kind of critiquing ethics or science divorced from humanity and, and ethics. But rather than just kind of merely critiquing religion and saying it's a sham, I mean, Bokanonism is a totally invented religion founded on shameless life, he uses the terms to make us look back and question science. And I think one of the moments that really captures that is when he uses the term grand saloon, which is a meaningless association of people. And he gives, you know, example, like the International Order of Fellows or the DAR. But then he says, any nation, any time, anywhere. And when you think about him writing this, you know, at the height of the Cold War, um, it gets published shortly after the Cuban Missile Crisis, you know, to question, you know, all the things we are doing in the name of nation and patriotism,
2: mm.
1: you know, is a pretty strong indictment. And I think it also squares, you know, again, thinking beyond national boundaries.
0: Yeah. I just saw a thing on the internet where they, it was a history site and they were saying it was the anniversary or something of one of a military general who had gone before Congress and had testified at a hearing that the United States needed, I think it was 151,322 nuclear missiles in order to protect the country, in order to be safe. And I was just staggered by the number, but also the precision, that that was the exact number that they determined that were needed. And you can kind of then say, well, the generals know, you know, what do I know? The generals know. And it seems like that's the kind of thing that would have driven Vonnegut crazy.
1: Oh, absolutely. And I mean, I mentioned, we mentioned earlier you know, kind of getting away from what he said about war, but, you know, his critiques of military technologies, for mm-hmm. example, nuclear weapons that can, you know, destroy huge swaths of people in, you know, instantaneously throughout his entire career, never uh, stopped challenging that, you know, he raised that question and that issue. And I would say throughout his life, so I didn't mean earlier when I was saying to dissent slaughter S five, because he really was consistent in challenging that, not just because it destroyed people, but because it destroyed, you know, entire cities, habitats.
0: Yeah. Did you get any, ins- speaking of consistency, he, he's got such a a figure of, he does have this, this pessimism, but he was also, he came across as so avuncular and so, you know, maybe a little bit, I would guess he wasn't always the cheerful, chuckling person, but I did get the sense that he was just a really decent guy who would probably be a wonderful neighbor or someone in your family or something. Did you see that in his writings or did did you see different sides of him coming through when you were looking at all of those drafts and personal papers?
1: That's such a great question, actually. I'm glad you asked it. Because I would say, if I had to sum it up, working with Vonnegut's papers, I realized he was an exquisitely sensitive soul. Mm. You know, I would just find these beautiful notes, you know, when he was struggling, you know, he'd be having numbers of columns, you know, get money to buy Christmas presents or, you know, just sweet things about his children,
2: Yeah.
1: Um, you know, and, and just what kind of person comes up with, you know, the canary in the coal mine theory of the arts. It is a sensitive soul, but I also got to, you know, correspond or work with a lot of Vonnegut scholars, you know, whether Mark Lees, or Jerry Klinkowitz or Asia Pratt or Robert Whitey, you know, people who knew him well, mm. you know, just constantly reaffirmed, you know, what a, a decent, kind person. And, and even in his publishing records, you know, he was always, you know, asking Seymour Lawrence to help out a writer. He would donate, you know, editions. Like, for example, he sold the rights to the Polish translation of Mother Night for basically like a nickel. You know, he he was always supporting other writers. You know, if something was important to him, like especially if it was dealing with nuclear weapons, he would do it for free. You know, I'll do it for expenses. Mm -hmm. So there was a there was there's an incredible generosity and just love of other writers that I don't think comes through. kind of a behind the scenes thing. And so I I hope that your listeners realize that, yes, that avuncular, you know, these calls for common decency and dignity, it's real. It's the real deal. I don't think you could fake that for an entire writing career.
2: Yeah,
0: yeah. It's so refreshing. (laughs) I'm so used to the opposite being the case where it's like someone is all image and then you find out, ah, it turns out that they're, you know, it's not. I know that a lot of people will say, well, what does that got to do with the books? The books should should stand for themselves. But there is something about when you're looking at someone to tell you things and who are kind of a visionary and are explaining the world, and I think Naomi Klein had said that Vonnegut was a person who saw it all coming, and we kind of look to people like that to be our prophets of a sort. It's kind of nice to find out that they weren't just putting one over on us by, you know, having this horrible personality that they disguised in their writing and in their public figure.
1: Absolutely. I will say I agree with Mark Vonnegut and people who say, you know, he was depressed at the end. But I think it's really only until the very end of his life when he was truly kind of heartbroken. But even in the, his very final speech that Mark Vonnegut delivered after he died, even after, you know, you know, mentioning the coming apocalypse, he ends with a joke and asks us to be unusually kind to each other. And, you know, I mean, he he couldn't just leave us, you know, even when he was, yeah. feeling despair. You know, he was making confetti prints. But I, I do acknowledge, or I don't want to gloss over, because he really was, I think, truly heartbroken by so many things at the end of his life, whether the wars in Iraq, or, you know, thinking about climate change, you know, there there was some real despair there.
0: Yeah. Which justified, I think.
1: I, I would agree. I would agree.
0: Yeah. Did he think I mean, I'm always trying to balance this pessimism with the, or or you could say realism, combined with his love for humanity and still having kind of this call for action and a belief in the humanities. Do you think that he thought the arts and humanities would change things for the better? Or would you characterize his position as closer to, well, it's it's probably a long shot and it probably won't happen, but it's probably our only chance. So we might as well... Uh, hope that this is what's going to end up saving us?
1: So, again, another great question. Um, So I think the thing with Vonnegut, he asks really big questions, right? You know, what is the purpose of a human life? What are people for? You know, is there free will? Those sorts of things. But his answers, again, like you just identified, are seemingly small, you know, connection to the arts and, and writing. And I guess having looked at the whole trajectory of his career, I would say he honestly, you know, in the 70s and 80s and sort of at the height of his public spokesmanship, I think he honestly really believed, although, you know, he mentions the whole thing about Vietnam and being the banana cream pie, I think he honestly believed that we could make things better. Mm. Um, but then as toward the end of his career, I think he, you know, was focused more on comforting human beings and these small actions, you know, being a secular saint, creating art because it'll make your soul grow, investing in community. But I appreciate that he kind of never gave up. You know, there's there's a real resilience. He didn't write us off. <laughs> but I I think he, he probably had less optimism at the end of his career than when you really look at his work from the 70s and early 80s. Hmm.
0: Okay, well, this leads me right into I have a special bonus question for you. Okay. Are you ready? I I think so. I don't know. (laughs) Okay. On your nth visit to a library filled with the papers of Kurt Vonnegut, you fall asleep at your desk, your head swimming with ideas. When you awake, a kindly man with sad but twinkling eyes is sitting across the table. It's me, he says, Kurt Vonnegut. I've come back to put things right as best I can. What do you think I should do? Should I write a screenplay write a novel, give a lecture or interview, make TikTok videos or should I scrap all that and go out and get a job in business or the government or maybe run for office myself? Knowing Vonnegut's talents and the state of the world in 2022, what advice do you give him? How can he have the most impact?
1: Well, it's funny because Kurt of course, you know, critiqued the internet yeah. and I don't, <laughs> you know, I think I think, you know, he would always say you know person can teach a child you know what humanity can do yeah i i think he would double down on human communities and i think you know and the thing is you know with his his relationship with technology i mean he had a chess playing robot i mean he had a more complicated relationship with technology but i think he would really do everything he could and i would see him reinventing himself in whatever way was necessary to help us restore human communities, I think he would double down on, you know, common decency, mm. dignity, you know, cultural relativity, being, you know, a whole lot more kind than we are. And I think he would go in whatever direction he needed to go. It might be art. It might be film. However, he could get that message out.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, now that even public libraries are under attack, maybe he could become like a cabinet-level uh, librarian czar or something.
1: Well, or maybe, you know, one of his big ideas was that we have a secretary of the future. You know, Sweden, of course, has one. Oh. You know, maybe maybe <laughs> he would make that his mission, that every every country, every, you know, board, every everything has a secretary of the future. And, and frankly, that wouldn't be a bad idea if you
0: ask me (laughs) yeah wouldn't that be a a good position for him
1: oh that would be yeah if anyone (laughs) he was so prescient on so many things he would be he would be one of my first nominations for sure
0: yeah I like that idea work for the United Nations as the uh, Secretary of the Future
1: yeah we could use all we could get
0: (laughs) (laughs) okay well let's leave things there Christina Jarvis thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature
1: thank you it's been a pleasure
0: Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Professor Christina Jarvis for joining me. Her book is called Lucky Mud and Other FOMA, available now in bookstores everywhere. And my thanks to The Village Voice, an intrepid reporter, Anna Mayo, and to Kurt Vonnegut, Happy Wanderer, who is hopefully happy wherever he is currently wandering. I suspect that he is happy, and I suspect that he is welcoming those saints Maybe playing the tuba to help them come marching in. A tuba which he does not know, does not quite know how to play correctly. But he's playing it with gusto, nevertheless. Speaking of not knowing what to do, but doing it with gusto, I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.